Welcome to the CRE Podcast, 100% Canadian, 100% commercial real estate. Now, here are your hosts, Aaron Cameron and Adam Pawatik. Welcome to the CRE Podcast, Episode 6. I am Adam Pawatik, and my co-host is Aaron Cameron. Uh, today on the show, we've got Adam Bent from This Open Space. Um, they offer a variety of services, but in particular, pop-up shops. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Adam, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, gentlemen. Thanks for having me. Uh, just uh, as a quick primer, I'm sure most people here know what pop-up shops are, but if we can just do you know, a minute background of what that is and then uh, kind of how, how your company got into that space. Yeah, I'm not even clear. You're, so you're the founder and owner. When did you start? How long have you been in this? Yeah, let's go through that process first. Yeah, so I'm co-founder of This Open Space, and I uh, call myself the COO, although nobody in the tech industry really knows what that job title means. Um, Sounds we, fancy. Yeah, it does. Sounds fancy. nice. <laughs> Generalist. Um, so we started doing pop-up shops um, about 2013 is the year that we had started. Um, and pop-up shops started many years before that. Um, the concept behind them is just short-term, right? Something that is temporary in a retail space. Um, and the first time that we started to see them was really based around seasonality, mostly around holidays. So I think uh, although they're, they're grandfather of pop-ups, you don't like to knock them too hard. A Halloween store is a great example, and that's the easiest way to understand them. Um, you know, using a vacant piece of commercial real estate um, to create a retail environment on something and a product that everybody wants to buy and purchase on that time of year. So how did you come up with this? Where did, where did the idea come from? I mean, was it organic or do you lie in awake at bed at night and said, oh my God, Eureka? Yeah. <laughs> so this open space started in 2013. Um, my business partner actually um, started with the idea. Um, so my business partner, Yash, my co-founder and CEO, uh, he began the business after he was running a hummus production company called Yummus. Okay. And he, uh, it was carried by Whole Foods and a couple other retailers. And he wanted to come up with a creative way to engage uh, consumers about the brand. So he found a short-term space that a landlord was willing to lease, and he did a full installation of a Middle Eastern pop-up cafe where the product was featured. So consumers could come in, you know, it was temporary, it's a novelty, people are interested, it's super unique, they didn't know what was going on. Um, So the cool factor was there. Um, And that ran for about two weeks and was tremendously successful. Yash ended up taking the lease over on that space. Um, And it became Vancouver and what we think is Canada's first rotating pop-up shop. Um, We still actually have the lease on the space to, to today. Um, so since then, um, the project went quite well. Uh, and and we, so, what, sorry, just sort of cut you off. Yeah. That means you're 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 finding other retailers to come in occasionally, you know, on on two week basis, monthly basis, you know, yeah, six the, month the, basis. Like, how does that work? And how do you how do you go through that process of finding the guys to put in that space? So the term the term length is really up to the guests and really about the availability for other bookings that we have in the space. Okay. Um, and you know, after we had that one property, the the concept started to snowball where different developers and brokerages in the city came to this open space to ask us, "Hey, we love what you're doing. We see what you're doing. You know, we've got vacant property XYZ. Um, we'd love to monetize it, and we'd like to actually you know have it as a community builder, so we can either get interest around this condo development that's going on on top of it, or you know we're knocking this property down in a year. We'd love to see some additional revenue. So we started to work with the real estate community to offer these types of spaces, um, both as community builders and both as revenue drivers. Um, from there, you know, as the inventory grew, different brands and agencies started to find us um, brands that wanted to be you know in a, in a short term space for a couple months or a couple weeks. Um, And we became a technology business in 2014, October of last year. So almost a full year this month. Hmm. And and by by that, you mean you've got just the online, you know, availability to book space, find tenants, you know, and and do you do a connection between 
um, the retailers looking for space and then the landowners that have the tenants and what's who drives the business, I guess, is it the retailers coming to you and you go and find the tenants or sorry, go and find the space or vice versa. The guys with the space are looking for you to fill their, their units. So they're, they're, we, we consider both parts of that process our clients. So there's the guests and the hosts. The hosts can be made up of business owners of the real estate community. The guests are the brands and the agencies that book, book with us. Mm-hmm. Um, so the marketplace has made it a lot more uh, simple and streamlined to actually find and discover spaces across multiple markets and are able to contact and communicate directly with the owners of those spaces, whether it's the broker or the landlord or the business owner. Hmm. So, so as, as a, you know, if you go to your website, you can see all the spaces uh, available. As a, as a percentage of that, you know, call, it a, call it a portfolio or available space, what percent would be you know, leased by you and used in rotation or you're trying to connect um, you know, a retailer? Yeah, Adam and I immediately yeah. have our financing brains on, right? Because <laughs> as, a, as a financer, you're looking at this thing like, if that's inconsistent tenancy on month-to-month basis, like I can't, give you the, I can't give you, the landlord, the benefit of that cash flow for that space unless there's sort of a non-arms-length, sorry, an yeah. arms-length tenancy. So yeah. can you, can you answer, how do you explain that? Or how do you decide whether you're actually going to sign a lease? And I guess, it's, is it your company that signs the lease, or do you bring a retailer in that there's a, you know, subleases from you? Like, what's that structure? look like? So we're not that vertically integrated yet. Um, we have a few leases on spaces, but it, it doesn't make up it even close to 90% of the inventory that we have in the marketplace. Um, we'd like to do more of our own leases because um, we use them as community builders and we can be very strategic in the leases that we take over. Um, but for the most part, the properties that are listed are generated by the landowners or the, sorry, the, uh, the property owners or the leaseholders. Okay. themselves. So in the same way that, you know, um, you know, you use realtor.ca here in Canada mm-hmm. or a broker might use LoopNet in the United States. Our marketplace is set up in the same way, although much, much easier to use and better design. Um, and it's the same way that, you know, the population, um, the business community, brands and agencies can go and access and find these spaces and reach out to the stakeholders that make the decisions on who's going to be in those spaces. Hmm. So, so I guess really when you get approached by um, really the landowners to help fill the space, you probably would look at it and say, is this a space that we think we could use on an ongoing, regular basis and drive enough demand to fill it over and over again. And then at that point, you would sign a, a lease, an actual lease with the landlord, because you think that it's it's got the, I mean, I'd say Queen Street West, you probably could find you know somebody to sublease it from you for 365 days a year just because of the location. Like, is that part of the decision-making? Or how, do you, how do you decide, I guess is my question, how do you decide when it's a, a, a unit or a location that you guys would actually sign the lease? Yeah, I mean, we, we have a, qu- a qualification process. When a property owner or broker comes and lists their space in the marketplace, it goes through a brief review from the team. Um, you know, what's the foot traffic like? What's the car traffic like? Um, is this an entertainment district? Is this a retail district? Um, you know, what's really going to drive the growth for this type of space? What kind of clients are going to be in this space? Um, if it hits a, a couple of benchmarks in that qualification process for us, um, and if it's designed nicely, it's retail friendly, let's say, um, then we'll approve it and it'll be listed in the marketplace. Um, but to use Toronto as an example, you know, if we get a property that's on Eglinton West and it's in this, you know, the subfloor, it's, it's a unit below, it's been sitting empty for a year, it looked like it was built in the 80s, that's not going to get approved in the marketplace because we know that it, there's going to be no demand for that space. So would you still list that space, though, on your website just, just to allow the, the landowner the access to maybe there's somebody living down the street that would actually use that space, but you just wouldn't actually put yourself in the middle of it? Or would you just not, you would say to that, that tenant or sorry, say to that landlord, sorry, no, we're just not going to, we're not going to list your space on our site. That's just it. I mean, we, we would always leave the door open to say, Hey, if you, you know, make cosmetic improvements to the space, you know, we might be, you might be open to listing it later on. Um, but we're pretty honest with the stakeholders in the marketplace. You know, we, we know what moves and what doesn't. So we won't list the space if we know it's not going to monetize and it's not going to drive any growth. Well, what, um, what one metric 
that you use for measurement. Because I mean, you rhymed off the metrics before; those are pretty. Those are common for you know, most retail sites. But what one metric do you really look for specifically for pop up that you wouldn't you know that stands out amongst just a general retail site? I mean, what's the hot button issue for you? Yeah, so any brand that's looking at a short-term pop-up space is going to be concerned with impressions. So they're looking for foot traffic and they're looking for car traffic. There are some notable brands or agencies um, where the booking itself is going to draw off enough, enough attention that they can choose a property that might be on a side street or might not be in a high-traffic location. You know, So Kanye West is a great example, although it was on Ossington here in Toronto realistically, they could have popped up anywhere in the city and the thousands and thousands and thousands of people that went to that pop-up would have found out and would have gone to that location, irregardless if it was in a high-traffic location or not. And that got big media coverage, and uh, which kind of even almost negates the uh, foot traffic issues. The impressions would have been measured by you know, television interviews, even you know, beyond the thousands of people that showed up. That was 100%. Just, yeah. And then there's the cool factor, right? If you choose a property... Um, that is a bit more secretive or in an undiscovered location. I mean, that can get built into the marketing campaign around that pop-up, right? That, that novelty and that, that discovery factor that's there. Mm. Um, so it, it really depends on the, on the brand that's going into the space. You know, if you're an emerging brand without a large budget, you know, you're, you're likely going to want to be somewhere in a high traffic location because the consumers don't really know about you yet. Um, so part of why you're doing a pop-up is to ideate, experiment with retail. You know, can you make a sustainable business by popping up for a week or for a month? You know, how are your sales? And then that will eventually lead into a full-term lease in a property once they've, you know, experimented and ideated. Um, but part of the solution that we're trying to offer to emerging brands, you know, come do a pop-up, learn about your consumers, learn about, you know, what you can make in a retail environment. Um, and a lot of them find that a much more safer transition than agreeing to a, you know, a multi-year lease right Yeah, of course, and, and putting all their eggs in one basket, so to speak. Um, who, what, what kind of uh, retail user do you find most active then? Is it, is it clothing? Is it, is it all over the place? I, I saw on your website you've got a ton of event space, right, where I, I don't know if it's um, people throwing bridal showers or, you know, what, is the, what are the users typical that you see or is it a, is it a smorgasbord? It's, it's very, very broad. Um, this open space really focuses on our audience of brands and agencies. That's our target market. Um, so your Lululemons, your Herschel's, you know, your Harley Davidson's, iconic brands, um, any agencies that they work with um, that are known. Because um, they, they require external commercial space for a variety of reasons. You know, retail is one segment, but our marketplace um, is built to offer them retail space event space, meeting space, production space, really any type of external commercial space that they might need for their business or agency. And the reason why brands love us is because they understand the process. They come to the one marketplace and we can service them. For a large product launch, something like that. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So they, there's not one segment that I would say um, makes up the majority. Um, retail would be the largest revenue driver for us. Um, and you know, retail is really going into experiential and event-based retail now. Um, so there is a bit of a blend between the retail and the, and the event side of our business. Mm. I first uh, actually um, heard Adam talk about this uh, at a NAB event not too long ago. And there, there was a whole visual component showing some of the, you know, the sophistication of, of these events. I mean, you referenced the Halloween, Halloween uh, vendors at the start. You know, I live out in Etobicoke, which is a suburb, so there, you know, my, that area is ripe around uh, Halloween, some you know, abandoned warehouse that gets taken over. But the level of sophistication of these brands, I mean, they're, they're dumping big money into these, into these uh, events, promotions. It's Oh, that's a good question uh, to feed into to the pricing. Like, how do you how do you determine what what I think you you typically do it on a per day basis, and and how do you come up with what is it a per square footage? Is it a location, or is it just kind of a do you just kind of throw a dart at a wall, or is it an algorithm that you're looking at and saying, okay, this is exactly how we're going to price this? So we definitely have a lot of data available to us. Um, you know, our team is always happy to make suggestions to the property stakeholders and our hosts of, of how they should price their space. 
Um, so we're always happy to, to, to suggest. Um, but, you know, at the end of the day, it's, it's up to that property owner, that broker. Um, you know, we've seen pop-up space go for above market value and under market value. Typically, if someone's been sitting empty for several months, it might go for under market value because the client might be aware of that vacancy. Market value being on a on a monthly per square foot basis, in the sense that we would look at it, but from you know on a typical five year term lease kind of thing. Exactly. Is that, okay. Exactly. Um, what's the What's the biggest um, step above market rent you've seen for that somebody's paid? I, I believe around thirty five percent. Okay. Yeah. I want to get the landlords excited when and, they listen to this. Yeah. And we definitely, we'd like to get more data around that because I find that very fascinating for our business. And we and we want to be able to build in margins so that the broker community sees value in short-term leasing. You know, we don't just expect you to not make any any revenue off of this. This is a relationship that you have with your landlord or a tool. Um, you know, we we want to be another tool in your toolkit so that you can monetize a property during that vacancy while you're looking for a long-term tenant. Mm-hmm. Well, and I, I think I think probably anybody listening is probably making the comparison to Airbnb and just the disruption that this could have in, in obviously in the retail space, but that, that Airbnb is having in the in the apartment space, right? We we see it regularly now where uh, apartment owners are coming to us saying, "I'm I'm vacating my eight unit apartment building, and I'm going to use all eight units as Airbnb suites, and I'm going to make you know fifty percent more per month than I was making just renting it out to on annual leases." And um, I, obviously, on the apartment side, they're looking at it thinking it's easy money to make an extra fifty percent. But you're saying it, it doesn't sound like they're getting a huge premium for renting it out to short term leases rather than you know, annual leases or, or, you know, five-year term leases or whatever it may be. So for, for 2016, we're at today. Um, I, I wouldn't, you know, recommend that a hundred commercial properties in the city suddenly convert to a short-term opportunity. Um, where I think we're going to be in three years though, we could, we could see, you know, dozens of properties in the city be able to support this kind of short-term environment. Um, so it really does come down to that particular property. Um, there is a shift happening in retail, um, pretty fast actually, where it's going much more omni-channel, much more online. So the need for brick and mortar space is diminishing. Mm-hmm. Um, but we're, we're, you know, the, the flag that we're flagging right now, um, is not really about converting your space into full-time short-term, um, but really monetizing it during that vacancy. The vacancy and, and getting a, a short-term client in there for a pop-up is not going to prevent you from signing a, a five-year term. Sure. In it's fact, just, it's going to probably filler. help you. Just holding, sign, holding, yeah. holding rent, basically. Exactly. And most yeah. of the most of the terms that go into the rental agreements with us, you know, the landlord has the full opportunity to say it's a thirty-day exit clause. So, you know, we all know how long it takes to close a longer-term deal on a lease. Yeah, um, <laughs> months and months. Yeah. So, you know, during that process, let's let's monetize it. Hmm. I can see how that works, but you know, if I'm, you know, let's say I'm selling, um, you know, uh, organic soap, and I want to sell it online, but I also want the street exposure. Rather than having three stores in three different locations, I can have one store that rotates every four months from store to store to store. So I still get that exposure to the streets, but I'm, you know, I'm, I'm also not not carrying the cost of three different stores, right? And I can imagine packing up and representing the store isn't isn't that big of a cost at the end of the day if you're saving that. Um, or giving that exposure and saving that saving that rent costs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, you see that. Uh, I mean, it's a poor example of a pop up, but you know, bookstores frequently will run into a space and occupy it for three months because it's easy. It's easy and portable. Uh, it was actually something I wanted to ask. It was the the kind of the non financial benefits for the landlords. I mean, I'm assuming that they see additional foot traffic and just the impression that they don't have a you know a space in their mall that's sitting dark because people really notice that. It's not as noticeable in other asset classes, you know, like office. But uh, yeah, the door's closed. You, you don't know if it's occupied yeah, or not. Yeah, yeah. But retail people really feel that pain when they got vacancy in the, in their mall. So, wait, what do you see as the benefit for landlord um, outside of just you know potential 
above rent market. Yeah, and second question on that: Do you see a lot of in enclosed mall pop ups, or is it predominantly street street traffic retail? I mean, what's where do you see the the majority of it, uh, the demand for it? Well, I'm going to have to answer those separately. Sure, go ahead. <laughs> those are two uh, loaded questions. Yeah, sure. um, no, no problem at all. Um, then you know the nine financial benefits. I think it's it is exposure. Um, it's brand awareness. Um, now I'll speak specifically to the value for you know maybe a commercial landlord versus a residential. Um, you know a lot of the commercial landlords, um, especially at the bottom of a condo tower, let's say a new development, have a lot of retail space. Um, a way to draw interest into that condo environment on the residential on top would be to animate a vacant commercial space. Um, you know whether you allow it, you know, access for a non-for-profit or you get a big brand in there that's doing an experiential, you know, retail environment. It's it's about eyeballs and getting new people through the door that you might have not otherwise reached in the first place. Um, if you own a series of properties, um, again, we know this challenge in real estate. As soon as you start to get one or two or three vacancies in a strip, um, it can become quite toxic for mm-hmm. the rest of the businesses absolutely. around there. Yeah, absolutely. And in a way to protect your your investment and your asset, you know open up your doors, open up that vacancy to a brand um, or to, you know, an emerging company, um, let them use that space that remains active and it, and it kind of, you know, holds the glue together for, for your real estate investment. Hmm. So, so when I, when I answered that question, you know, the, the non-financial, um, if you, if you have that space sitting empty other way, anyways, and you, you know, want to protect your, your investment, then, you know, make use of it and let it become a community builder. And how have you found, um, like, I know you're in your four different markets, uh, Vancouver, Toronto, Ottawa and New York, where have you found the widest acceptance of this uh, kind of newer business model where pop-ups are really becoming sophisticated? Um, I'd say that, you know, we, we started in Vancouver and then we launched in New York and Toronto last year. Um, Toronto and New, and New York obviously are, you know, two of the top 10 economic powerhouse urban capitals in the world. Um, so our adoption rate, especially for the retail segment and for pop-ups is extremely high in these two markets. Um, Vancouver doesn't necessarily have the massive population size and the growth to support um, the same degree uh, of, of pop-up retail that, that New York and Toronto does. Um, so New York and Toronto um, are excellent markets for us. Um, we're seeing 15% growth month after month in those markets. Wow. Wow. And retail is the fastest growing segment out of that. And then uh, you have your sights set on a fifth market? Um, you know, we, we are going to be expanding into the U.S. Um, we have kind of soft launched L.A. We've got about 30 properties there that we're working with currently. And we have done some some interesting uh, retail pop-ups there with the Hip Hop Artist Future and a really interesting online e- uh, e-commerce retailer called Fancy.com. Um, and we're, we are going to probably look at L.A. Um, or some secondary or, or two-tier markets in the U.S., um, Chicago is also a great a great market that we'd like to go to. How many locations do you have listed you know, across the four the four locations or, or across the four cities? Is that too hard to quantify? No, no. So historically, we've had you know over twelve hundred listings since we since we launched the marketplace. The, this open space 2.0 that you see today yeah. last October, um, about six hundred and fifty of those are still active. Um, the reason why that number decreases because some of the supply is fickle. It's not around, you know, for, for six months or for a year. Right. So we might have a property available to us for three or four months, then it comes offline. And what kind of occupancy or maybe it's hit rates or something? Like how do, how do you quantify that? You've got 650 listings and how many of them are kind of being chewed up and used on any given day? So unfortunately, I don't have the data for the retail segment alone because we do have event meeting production space and so mm-hmm. on. So it's, that would be a difficult and accurate number to quantify. Hmm. Have you had uh, any real heartbreak about losing 
just an amazing piece of real estate that you know you had for six months and then uh, it got leased up long term. Is there anything that's kind of really stuck out in your mind? Absolutely, King and Blue Jays Way um, on the corner here in Toronto, across from the Shoppers Drug Mart. It's a beautiful main and main property that we had access to almost for the last year. Um, it was a great pop up space for us. Um, lots of great brands and retailers because it's such a great location. I mean, even during the weekends, it has immense traffic because of the because of the games and being near the CN Tower. So that was just that was just leased out. So that was a that was a heartbreak for me. But we yeah. did redevelop the um, the vacant patch of property beside it. Um, we got some new gravel in there. Um, we leveled it out. We painted the walls. We added in a couple steps. So it's an elevated platform. And we've been doing outdoor activations there with Catelli, with Casper Mattresses, and a bunch of other interesting brands who are utilizing the outdoor space and doing some really cool marketing activations. And that revenue is still flowing back to Maine at Maine. Hmm. And brands like uh, Casper, I know that it's used at Omnichannel. I know I've seen their ads all over the subway. I know I've seen them around town. They're they're really uh, hitting the market hard. So something like pop-ups will make a lot of sense to to include in that mix. Do you find landlords resistant at all? Like, do you think sometimes you have to sort of convince them and say, no, this is a good use of your space? Or, or, or I'm just, I, I would think that they're the ones that probably are a challenge at least to get online. Is that where your the primary, primary focus of your business development is to, to keep finding more sit listings is to, is to search out those landlords with the vacant space and say, hey, use us, help us make you some money or help us, you know, uh, occupy this space temporarily? So we, we definitely do have, you know, scenarios where we're working directly with the landlords, but as brokers, they're on the front line and, and for the most part have long, long-term relationships with the landlords. Um, so the community that we speak to most often would be the brokers sure. when it comes okay. to vacant, vacant right. commercial real Great. estate. Um, and, you know, we are, part of, part of our role is also kind of the education piece, um, being able to kind of quantify and, and bring legitimacy to short-term real estate um, and being advocates for what we're doing to, to brokerages so that they, they see this as, as something that's valuable for their relationships with their landlords um, and as part of the toolkit for the leasing strategy that they roll out for their brokerages. And I'm not sure if we mentioned it yet, but for any of the brokers listening, it is uh, thisopenspace.com. It's actually a beautiful website, and uh, it was worth. It would have been a shame if we forgot to say that. <laughs> I would have said it. Don't worry. I would have definitely got the end of this podcast. <laughs> um, well, that's really interesting, Adam. That, that's that's uh, obviously a new, new, a new, new side of the real estate industry. As you guys are, are kind of trailblazing, and it's great. It's really, uh, it's really fascinating to me. Anything else you want to add? You know, before we kind of move on, is there anything we covered? Yeah, so the, um, the, the way that retail is headed, um, like I said earlier, it's becoming much more experiential. And as the you know, e-commerce and online brands look for omni-channel opportunities, um, brick and mortar will always be part of their strategy. Um, you know, there's over a million online brands that are selling directly to consumers today. So let's say, let's call them e-commerce brands for the sake of simplicity. Um, all of these million brands that exist on the internet want to be able to get in front of their customers in a different way. Traditionally, they've done online sales and e-commerce sales, um, but now they're, they're looking to you know, open up a brick-and-mortar retail location, whether that's for a couple of days, a couple of weeks, or multi-month or multi-city. Mm-hmm. The, the evolution that we're seeing is these, e- these e-commerce brands coming offline, and then they're going eventually and opening up multiple long-term leases all over North America. I can give you two really great examples of this. Um, you know, Frank and Oak is a great Canadian company, um, an online men's retailer. They started online only. Um, then they switched over to pop-ups. They did a few in Montreal and here in Toronto. Um, then they moved into some co-branded environments with coffee shops, juice bars, barber shops. Um, and now they're going to be rolling out, you know, over 50 stores, permanent locations across the North America. So this is a great evolution for us to see because we see, you know, adoption happens, you know, over a two or three year period. And then these online retailers do start expanding. The same thing happened with Warby Parker. I'm a great glasses brand. Started off with a pop-up shop of opened up 40 locations. Even Amazon is opening up 100 pop-up stores this year. 
So if you're a broker that gets approached by an emerging brand, um, you know, maybe someone that you haven't heard of before, that, that pop-up could really lead into a long-term and lucrative relationship for you. Yeah, if you were the uh, the Frank uh, you know, connection, all of a sudden you're doing 50 long-term leases. It's, uh, but it's amazing. They started out uh, just just online. I know I've seen their ads on Facebook 900 times, and I've you know, clicked on it to take a look. And uh, you incorporate some pop-ups and transition into 50 leases. It's a, good, it's a good stepping stone to that goal rather than signing a bunch of long-term leases and crossing your fingers and hoping and for hoping the best. And hoping it works. Yeah. Yeah, no, it actually yeah. it's brilliant. Yeah, and it also eases the transition for landlords because they don't like taking chances on brand new businesses for the most part, but you can show some sort of track record or success of you know, pop-ups on a six-month basis. It helps you know, allay their fears because I know that that's a common, common concern is you know, a tenant with no track record going into a space. I got I to gotta ask Adam, what, um, what project are you most proud of? Whether it was just very interesting or it was very difficult or got a lot of exposure yeah, and I'll add to that. Or a retailer that came to you and you're like, oh, that's, that's interesting that these guys are actually looking to do a pop-up shop. So the, uh, the project that I'm most proud of, um, that we are most proud of as a business, as a company, is, is our, one of our locations in, in Vancouver we call the Playground. Um, so this is one of our monetized spaces that we held the lease on. Um, and we use it as a community builder so that different brands and merging companies could come and use the space to get in front of consumers. Um, so we've actually recently dropped down our costs there um, and we're creating a concept called transparent retail. So emerging brands, people with great ideas, great products, great concepts are able to come into the playgrounds, what we call it. Um, and they see everything listed actually on the window. So the rents, the insurance, the cleaning costs, the electricity, the utilities. So, you know, these emerging entrepreneurs who may be the next Frank and Oak, um, you know, can, can really learn about the retail process and, and what that investment looks like when you're opening up a brick and mortar location. And how much of the space is it a shared space? How does that work? Do they get a, they get a certain component of it? Like it's almost like a booth in, in no, a certain they get, they get the full space. space. It's a thousand square feet. Um, it's right in downtown Vancouver near Chinatown, between Chinatown and Gastown. It's a great location with lots of foot traffic. Um, it's beside an art gallery and another retail location and a coffee shop. And do you pay for the signage or is it, is it temporary signage? How does that work? We've done some interesting contests where we've got lots of sponsorship in there to help help these emerging brands out. Um, but for the most part, the design elements and kind of the build out is up to them. And what's the timeline on it? When did it start? When do you see it, uh, when do you see it ending? Uh, we're going to keep that space. It's going to yeah. be something that we actually like to roll out in Toronto and in, uh, in, in New York as well. Do you put limits? Like somebody walks in and says, I want this space for five years. You say, no, no, so it doesn't work that way. No, no, no. Well, well, well if, if they're going to, you know, no, I would say the short answer is no, no. Maybe you could do a couple months, maybe. And then they'd have to find their own way if they're being successful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sorry, this is our space. No <laughs> now to answer your, your question from earlier, yeah. um, one of the brands we're most excited about. Um, I, I really do like seeing these, these online retailers come to us. Um, not, not that I would normally be excited about Walmart, um, I don't think I'd say that out loud, but, um, you know, we recently are, uh, we're, we're contacted by Walmart to roll out a program with them to open up small mini markets in neighborhoods. So like basically pop up Walmarts. Um, so although I like to support small emerging businesses, um, you know, it's cool to see a massive, actually the world's largest retailer come to a business like ours, um, wanting to experiment with pop ups to see, you know, why, why is this an emerging trend? Can we make this profitable to go into smaller retail environments? And, and just being part of that transition process from these massive, massive big box stores. Yeah, I was going to say. To come yeah, to us and yeah. want to do something 200,000 square feet or, or no, 500 20, square yeah, feet. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. 20-year lease, now they're talking six months. That's a massive, massive shift in their yeah. uh, business strategy. Exactly. And I mean, yeah. they, you know, they see these, these neighborhoods flourishing with independent businesses and maybe they want a piece of that action. I don't know. 
Um, but it's it's interesting to see the contrast between the biggest retailer, the biggest stores to come to a smaller pop-up environment. So we should start to see them on the streets of Toronto in the next few months. Well, is it branded as Walmart? Oh, yeah. Wow. That's interesting. Yeah, it's interesting to see what kind of products they carry. How do they how do they parse down you know, virtually everything you can imagine into a... What, what's, what's for that format? What kind of square footage are we talking here? Um, so we haven't quite figured that out yet, but I believe that they would be less than a thousand square feet. Any sense of what they're intending on selling in these in these stores? No news yet. Okay. Or maybe it'd be a, a pickup point that you can you can place yeah, your order and order then online it and it shows there yeah. Yeah, something like that. Interesting. That, yeah. With a wink, that may be. <laughs> do. Winks don't translate on podcasts very well. <laughs> cool. Well, so um, thanks very much for sharing all that stuff, uh, Adam. It's very very interesting. Um, and then I guess the next segment is your best and worst. I know we kind of just dropped this on you last minute, so so do your best. Not a problem at all. I mean, I I'm a technology guy. Um, I'm an entrepreneur that comes from technology, but I worked in events and hospitality and travel, which, which led me to this open space. Um, so I'd say that my, my biggest win um, with some of the partnerships that we've been able to form with, uh, with developers in our markets, um, they've proven to be great assets. Um, so your West Banks, your Main and Mains, your Hallmarks, that's been excellent relationships that have really helped our company grow. Um, for our, our worst day in real estate, I mean, it's probably like any, any broker that's listening right now, it's losing these deals. Um, just, just like you losing a long-term deal, I, I uh, go to sleep at night very angry and upset when I, when I lose a good short-term deal from a great brand that I wanted to work with. Sure. Yeah, I've, uh, I think everybody really <laughs> yeah. experienced We maybe that, yeah. want to change this segment because it's always yeah. the same thing. Best day was when I did this really good deal. The worst yeah. day was when I did this really bad deal. <laughs> well, it's surprising. That's what we're all here for. So. It's all about the deals. All about the deals. <laughs> Um, on to news, Adam. What's your what's your news item for the for the day today? Well, Maggie, I'm actually glad I'm going first because the news item I got actually is on pop ups. I uh, Altus Group actually put in a tweet as a is a BizNow article. Uh, so it, obviously, the gist of it is similar to what we're talking about now. But they talked about specifically two companies, Westfield Corp and Simon Property Group have allocated more space and brought on more staff to aid the temporary tenants, meaning they're actually, they're not seeing this as a stopgap or just something to kind of, you know, juice up their return. They're, they're actually seeing this as a, you know, viable, they want to, they want to make it a part of their business and they're, they're investing into it. So it's a kind of interesting shift. Uh, you know, again, as we just referred to the, the Halloween stores of years gone by, you know, they're, they're simply just occupying vacant space, but this is, you know, a business model that people want to invest in and expand. So that's uh, that's why I chose uh, the business article for this one. Yeah, so Westfield's actually um, been one of the larger real estate organizations that's embraced pop-ups for a while now. Um, I was actually just in New York um, for the past couple of days, and I checked out the temporary space that they have set up at the the bottom of the New World Trade Center tower. Um, and it is a it is a rotating space in a couple of the uh, of the the spaces that they have in the mall. And the reason why they're doing this is because their their long term tenants benefit from having fresh retailers in there because it's getting people who otherwise wouldn't go back to those spaces in the doors again. So by you know continuously switching up on these multi month agreements with interesting brands, um, they're able to con- you know continue to drive new traffic to their malls. Um, so they've actually um, come out with a whole specialty leasing team that's specific for pop ups. And the base of uh, the World Trade Center would be about as prime of real estate as you could possibly find on this continent. So obviously they see value in it. And is that the is that the entire the entire retail component of the of that space, or is it just you know fifty percent that they're rolling over on these pop ups, or would it be it would be hundred percent of the space? No, I don't exactly know the percentage. It's a portion, though. but the so portion. Of, so there are some that are consistent that are there, and then there are some that are constantly rotating. Exactly. That make I mean that makes sense. That's interesting. 
Yeah, the other thing, actually, in the article they mentioned, um, you know, this is all in the idea of you know combating department store closures, which everybody knows is going on. But they also mentioned combating the growth of e-commerce. But what you're saying is that it's not necessarily a versus situation. That you know they are kind of you know, symbiotic, and the e-commerce retailers are taking space using pop-ups. Uh, Amazon taking space. It's not necessarily adversarial. So I thought that was uh, maybe something that didn't make sense in the article. This is maybe hard to answer, and 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 but a bit philosophical. But do you get a sense that maybe there's just some resistance? I mean, you talk to some people, and they say, "Yeah, everything, every retail is going to be done online going forwards, and it's going to be this slow draw away from people wanting to go to the stores, and everyone's just going to be shopping online." And I kind of get a sense that there's going to be some resistance to that. There's always going to be people that are going to want to go to the store and and shop around, and maybe some e-commerce guys are realizing that that they can't survive solely online, and and that your 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 company is a good sort of segue back to some store frontage? Exactly. I mean, I think, I think the retailers and the brands that are going to really succeed and do best are, are doing both online and offline. They're both two very important experiences for, retail, or for consumers these days. Um, you know, when you, when you activate in an offline environment in a brick-and-mortar location, you're typically drawing in new customers. And the point of that is to really bring them back online, get them engaged, bring them into your online audience, and then they're consuming you know, on, your, on your e-commerce platform. Um, and there's, just, there's intangible things that you can't get from the Internet. I mean, there's great return policies, which is why I see the e-commerce companies, you know, agreeing to take things back for free, let's say. But, you know, a mother's never going to go and buy a, a toy for a young toddler that she hasn't been able to necessarily to touch, touch and feel it herself. Yeah. What? And, and I mean, you mean trying on clothes, right? Men are still very resistant to that. Yeah. And we, we'd probably rather try things on in store than ordering them online and them not fitting properly. Yeah, well, I, the conversely to that, I use my, my mother living in California. They, they're obviously a little bit ahead of us on, on, on this e-commerce and she will... Uh, order seven shirts and three different colors and two different sizes and have them all delivered 40, 40 minutes later on Amazon, tries them all on, picks the one, puts the other six back in the box and you know, goes back online and says return and there's somebody there 45 minutes later picking them up. Like it's that easy of a, of a process, but I think she still likes going to malls as well, right? Yeah. So I think it's it's the best of both worlds. You think about that green footprint that just happened. Well, right? I know. Well, I mean, that's, that's not fair very enough. environmental. No, you're absolutely right. No, you're absolutely right. Well, they're not drones yet, but I guess if that makes a difference if, if it ever happens. <laughs> right. My news is not really news, I guess. I'm sorry. It, it, I, I've just I spent the last couple of weeks traveling around the, the, the country, and, 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 and this, is a, this is a comment to the group, but I'm hoping a little bit of discussion occurs here. So Toronto, there's a lot of development going on, and, and, I, and I, obviously it's, it's, a, it's a combination of a ton of different variables, but I would, I would put you know, maybe three or four at the top. The congestion, obviously, so that it's really hard to get around the city, and nobody wants to live you know, in Mississauga and commute an hour and a half into the city. So there's demand to get people closer to the, to the core. Uh, large, large employment opportunities, obviously a big service sector in, in, in Toronto, particularly in the downtown core. So a uh, ton of jobs down here. So that this is sort of the main focus for the employment. And it's a sort of a vibrant downtown core, right? It's, it's a nice place to, to work. And so you are seeing this huge sort of development of condos. Uh, obviously, the office is following. There's a lot more retail going up. I and mean, we're now having, you know, city planners, you know, enforcing uh, schools to be part of sort of mixed-use developments and things like that. Uh, and that's driving this, this, this great development that we're seeing, huge sort of influx of population into the city. Go to Vancouver. You know, Vancouver is a little bit different because you have you have obviously have the immigration coming from presumably Asia, uh, and you have a bit of a land control issue because you got you know the, the border to the south and the and the you know the mountains to the north. But there's still this vibrant downtown core, and there's a ton of development going on. I mean, it's even more insane in Vancouver than it is in Toronto. That everywhere you look, there's you know 50 story towers going up. But uh, you still get it. The congestion is a challenge. It's a great place to live. You know, the downtown core has got a ton of employment opportunities. So I think that those are kind of all contributing equally. I mean, again. Aside from the land, the land, um, the land restrictions in Vancouver, then you go to Montreal, 
which I would say has congestion issues, has a vibrant downtown core, has a large service. I mean, there's a ton of banks that, you know, really only operate in the Quebec marketplace. I mean, you know, pr- predominantly because of the French language, but, but still there's a ton of employment opportunities. Uh, yet there's very little development going on in Montreal. I mean, there's some, but not even, not even a tenth of what's going on in Toronto or Vancouver. And I would put Montreal as the third largest, you know, urban center in Canada. And I, I pose the question as to why. Why is it that Montreal seems like they've got the right recipe, the right ingredients to create sort of a real high demand for, for downtown living, live, work, play in that downtown core, but it's just not happening yet. I mean, they're you know, now seven, eight years behind sort of this huge growth we're seeing in Toronto and Montreal. And uh, I don't get the sense talking to the developer clients that we have that it's really ramping up. I mean, there is some guys playing in that space, but not, not a terrible amount. Any ideas why? I mean, I have my theories, but I'm curious what you guys think. The rent they pay in Montreal is nowhere near what you get in Vancouver and Toronto. The rent you get for retail, the rent you get in the industrial buildings, because there's a lot of, uh, you know, we'll call them heritage buildings, but it also means old and outdated. Decrepit. Yeah. <laughs> so there's, you know, you're not going to get the, the return you need in order to justify building. You know, construction costs are astronomically higher than they were, you know, 30 years ago. So you need to have, you need to have that exit strategy, which is, which is revenue, and you're not you're not. Do you think there. it's just strictly economical? They just can't make as much money developing a condo or an apartment building in downtown Montreal, and therefore, it doesn't matter. Therefore, th- they're not going to do it. I think Montreal has always been a renter's market over ownership. It's maybe even you know long term families. Couples, Very European people, in that sense. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, ownership as not as not as important maybe culturally in Quebec as it is uh, here in you know this part of the East Coast or, or in Vancouver. And, you know, there's a large, large student population that comes and goes. And it's always been a bit more of like a vagrant city. People come for a couple of years and they leave. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that also has something to do with it, that, you know, the population growth um, doesn't explode like the other markets like it has in Toronto and Vancouver. Um, the language does have something to do with that, too. Sure. You, know, you don't have English Canada moving in the droves and numbers to Montreal like you do in the other markets that are growing a lot faster. Yeah, when I, 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 was, I was there for, a, for, for an event we had and, and, and was kind of, polling the people I was talking to. And, and actually those two is the culture and population growth were the two biggest factors. And these were developers telling me, you know, the reason we're not doing it here, we're developing in Vancouver and Toronto, even though I'm from Montreal, they would say is because I don't have the population growth. I don't have, it's not the culture for, for condo ownership. People just don't want to go. And I, I asked a renter, one of the guys that was there and he said, you know, I lived in Toronto for a couple of years and, and everyone kept saying, when are you going to buy a home? When are you going to buy a home? And he's like, never, I don't want to buy a home. And that's, that's kind of the Montreal, Montreal attitude. And maybe it is just a European thing. Um, you're not going to get a five bedroom house for, for the same price as well, a, like a studio yeah. condo in Toronto. But he, he, was like, he was like 36, still living with a roommate. He's like, man, I don't know what's going to, if I'm ever going to move out. Right. That's just, you know, that's just the, that's just the way things are here. Right. So there's an article a while ago, actually on that topic saying that Montreal is rather spend their money on experiences rather than just shoveling cash into a house. Like people in Toronto seem very comfortable doing. Yeah, Adam eats his lunch that's pre pre made for him the night before because he doesn't want to spend the ten bucks <laughs> <laughs> buy lunch right now. <laughs> that's great. Anything else, guys? No, I think that's uh, that's it for news. Obviously, want to thank everybody for listening, and if you enjoyed the show, please tell a friend. Uh, I would like to thank our guest, Adam Bent. Thank you very much for coming on the show. Much appreciated. And if anybody wants to see what he's up to, it's thisopenspace.com. And of course, you can reach out to Adam over LinkedIn, just as I did to get him to come for the show today. <laughs> uh, and of course, check out uh, commercialrealestatepodcast.ca or uh, follow us on iTunes, CRE Podcast, Commercial Real Estate Podcast. Thanks, Thank gentlemen. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to the CRE Podcast. The information from this broadcast is not to be relied upon as financial investing, professional accounting, or legal advice. 
First National Financial LP holds Financial Services Commission of Ontario License Number 10514 and 11252.